This is a podcast from the October 15, 2007 Faculty Summit on Intercollegiate Athletics, hosted by the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. This podcast is from the morning session relating to case study of crises spurring faculty involvement. The podcast runs approximately 1 hour and 18 minutes. For more information on the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics, please visit www.knightcommission.org. Case Study of Crises Spurring Faculty Involvement Faculty members from universities where athletic departments have made headlines for controversial actions or ethical issues involving athletes and coaches will discuss the appropriate role for faculty during such crises. How might the behavior of the faculty have promoted the culture that led to the problem? What cultural norms should the university strive for? What can faculty members do in concert to foster those desired cultural norms? The moderator for this session is Dr. Charles Young, President Emeritus of the University of Florida and Chancellor Emeritus of the University of California at Los Angeles. This is uh, breakout number three, uh, case studies of crises that have spurred faculty involvement, and I appreciate those of you who are here having have joined us, joining us today. Uh, we have two other members of the Knight Foundation uh, Commission here, uh, Britt Kerwin, who, is the, uh, who has been introduced before and, and, and spoke at the beginning of the session this morning, who is currently the Chancellor of the University of Maryland System and is also the co-chair of the Knight Foundation Commission, and Tom Hearn, who is the uh, President Emeritus of Wake Forest University and was, uh, is the Chairman Emeritus of the Knight Foundation Commission. And I'm very pleased to have them here. Uh, each of the panelists uh, who are going to be speaking today and, and involved in what I hope will be a very stimulating exchange with uh, those of you who are here uh, have been involved um, in um, crises or very difficult problems that existed at their universities with regard to intercollegiate athletics and were heavily involved in trying to determine what went wrong and how to fix it. And uh, they'll be speaking, I'm sure, about uh, some of their experiences in that regard this morning. I'll introduce them in order. They've all been in – well, two of them have been introduced before, but I'll introduce them again since some of you may not have paid too much attention the first time around. Uh, you're, you're expected to this time. Uh, Scott Adler, who is uh, for the, to my right, your left, is an associate professor of political science at the University of Colorado. He is a visiting professor at the Center for the Study of American Politics and the Department of Political Science at Yale University. Scott chaired the University of Colorado's, Colorado's Faculty Assembly Special Committee on Athletics Reform, which released a detailed proposal for reform of intercollegiate athletics at Colorado in 2004. Scott earned his undergraduate degree at the University of Michigan and his Ph.D. at Columbia University. And Paul Hagan, who you have heard from, also is a professor and co-director of the Center for Sports Law and Policy at Duke University School of Law. He played an instrumental role and was closely involved in many of the activities at Duke following the lacrosse team party incident, including serving as an advisor to President Broadhead, 
uh, President Broadhead. Paul earned his undergraduate degree at Haverford, was a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford, and earned his law degree at Yale and his doctorate in history from Princeton. And Nathan Tublitz is professor of neurobiology. I, I, I am, am quick to uh, make, um, add uh, to the to biology, which was in my, in my comments. He co-chairs the Coalition on Intercollegiate Athletics, which is a national, national faculty group formed in 2002 and dedicated to articulating the faculty's voice on athletics reform issues at the national level. The coalition released a strong, insightful white paper on, in, on reforming intercollegiate athletics a few months ago. Nathan earned his undergraduate degree at Reed and his Ph.D. at the University of Washington. Our panelists' comments will, as I've said, focus on what happened at their institution and how the faculty's actions or lack thereof may have promoted the campus culture that led to problems and or helped in their resolution. They'll tell us about what actions the faculty took in response to problems and how those efforts may be relevant and scalable to other campuses, ideally before the next crisis. Um, Scott, uh, why don't you begin, and we'll have comments from each of the panelists uh, with perhaps some interchange from, from each of them and then move to uh, uh, interaction with the members of the, of the audience. Scott? Thanks, Jeff. Um, I guess I'll t start with maybe the final point that I want to emphasize, which is in some ways I think the impor important lesson to learn from the experience of the University of Colorado is that not only don't you need a scandal or a crisis to achieve the changes that we were able to, um, but if, I think if you, if you do this right, um, you can actually avoid all of this, which is my hope um, that, would, that, I can, that I can impart this point on you. Um, let me briefly refresh your memory on this because it was a few years ago. Um, late in 2002, a, a CU co-ed filed a lawsuit under Title IX against the university alleging that she had been assaulted at a, a football recruiting party. And there were a number of other accusations that cropped up over the next year, but it was not until... Um, the district attorney in a deposition accused the athletic department of having used sex as a recruiting tool, and that's when this blew up into a full-fledged scandal. Um, pretty quickly, there were a number of investigations launched, um, one appointed by the regents, which was called the Independent Investigative Commission, um, which was a number of prominent individuals in the state, um, the president and chancellor appointed their own investigator, who was a former university president. I'm sure some of you know him, John DiBiagio. Um, the governor had the state attorney general involved in, in his investigation. Um, and, of course, there was the ongoing um, uh, lawsuit. A bit under the radar was the, our faculty assembly had a committee on intercollegiate athletics, um, which I was then appointed from that committee by our, our assembly chair as the chair of a special committee to come up with a set of recommendations on how to restructure oversight and governance and what sort of, sorts of improvements we could make on the process. Well, lucky for us, I, I, I guess, was that no one else had a plan. Um, and our report, um, we 
timed to come out before any of the other investigations were completed. Now, we weren't actually doing an investigation into what happened. We were simply saying, okay, we have a problem in how um, we uh, how, our, how we oversee what the athletic department does, um, the involvement of both the administration and the faculty in the, in the operations of the athletic department. How can we improve that for everyone, um, both the students, um, the faculty, the boosters, the administrators, etc.? Um, that re the, the recommendations in that report were then endorsed by the Independent Investigative Commission. Um, John DiBiagio, the, uh, who was working for the president and the chancellor. And subsequently, we had sympathetic, we had a sympathetic president, a sympathetic uh, chancellor and provost, who then said, this is what we're going to do. Um, so I guess one warning out for faculty is be careful what you wish for. You will be on a committee. Um, you will be involved in um, doing, implementing all of this, which is what happened for the next few years for me. Um, the result was um, fairly positive. Uh, we created a campus athletics board that we had not had previously. That was separate from the faculty assemblies intercollegiate athletics committee. The campus athletic board was dominated by faculty but was not exclusively faculty. It included um, athletics administrators. It included some other um, non-athletics administrators. It included a student athlete. Uh, a coach, uh, but was mostly made up of, of faculty. Um, and we also had still maintained a separate faculty committee on intercollegiate athletics. Um, the two, though, had what were largely overlapping um, jurisdictions, if that's what you want to call them. Um, there were some... Um, some initial problems, um, it was not entirely clear what the boundaries of what this athletics board was to deal with. Um, it was also not cl clear, and it's still, I think, not the case. I'm no longer on the board, um, uh, having been away from the university. Uh, they don't really have independent in, um, policymaking or enforcement powers. Uh, but they do report directly to the chancellor, uh, and they make recommendations on a broad number of issues. Now, there's some restructuring that's going on, uh, largely to work out some of these turf issues. Um, some of the other problems that we've faced is, uh, as, as you glean from the previous report, not enough faculty who are really informed on the issues of intercollegiate athletics. So when we get new faculty on the committee, they are often, uh, take, there's an often steep learning curve. Um, we also faced an, an interesting and very related problem of an enormous amount of turnover from every position on the, of the president on down. In the first two years of that board, the president, chancellor, provost, vice chancellor, athletic director, football coach, compliance officer, all of those positions turned over in that two years. Now, obviously, they were somewhat related to athletics, also related to a, another problem that we had on campus. Um, um, but that, so that was a bit of an issue. However, we have been somewhat effective in getting some, some of these changes implemented, in getting better structure for ac academic support for student athletes, 
in getting coaches that are willing to um, talk with the faculty and have them involved. Um, and I think that that has resulted in improved recruiting of student athletes. Um, student athletes are still young men and women. Uh, they come to campus not, to, not, not um, infrequently with parents. Um, when they see faculty there to talk to these um, students, that impresses the parents and can certainly improve um, who you get in terms of the, uh, the recruits. So we have had, uh, I think, some real positive effects here. Um, that's not to say that there aren't problems that still exist and they are still ongoing, but I think we've had um, a, a good effect um, as a result of this crisis. But my hope is that, you won't, that other universities won't have to have these crises in order to implement a lot of the things that have been recommended by the, by the COYA report. And actually, a campus athletic bo board is in the NCAA guidelines. So let me turn it over. Paul, why don't you go ahead? Um, <coughs> I think I'm going to have to start with the point that there's some problems you probably can't avoid, and uh, I think this was one of them. Um, uh, I recognize that probably a lot of you know about the Duke lacrosse party case, um, but it may be worth rehearsing a little bit what happened. During spring break 2006, the, captain of the captains of the men's varsity lacrosse team organized a party to which most of the members of the team came, and they hired two exotic dancers to perform. The two dancers hired were both African Americans, all but uh, one of the players on the team were white. Shortly after the arrival of the second dancer and the beginning of their performance, a dispute broke out between the students and the dancers, and the dancers left amidst considerable acrimony and the mutual exchange of insults. Later that night, one of the two dancers alleged first that she had been robbed by the other dancer and later that she had been raped by multiple persons at the party. The district attorney, who was in the midst of his first uh, election campaign, publicly accused the Duke students of having engaged in a brutal, racially motivated sexual attack on the dancer, who was identified as a single mother struggling to make ends meet while attending North Carolina Central University, a historically black university in Durham, a few miles from the Duke campus. He asserted that the other members of the team not directly involved in the attack <clears throat> were engaged in a conspiracy of silence in furtherance of an attempt to cover up the crime. Several weeks later, the district attorney brought felony indictments against three members of the team. Not surprisingly, the accusations both brought a media firestorm of attention and exacerbated suspicion and tension in the community. Over the ensuing <coughs> weeks, in large part because of the way uh, Dick Broadhead and the administration handled itself, that tension dissipated to a significant degree, but it never entirely went away. Nine months after the district attorney made his initial comments about the members of the Duke men's lacrosse team, the State Bar Association brought ethics charges against him related to his handling of the case. Those charges were proven and resulted in his removal from office and the loss of his license to practice law. He was later sentenced to a brief prison term for criminal contempt of court for lying to the court in the course of these proceedings. 
Because the ethics charges created a conflict of interest for the district attorney, he requested that the Attorney General of North Carolina take over the lacrosse case, which the Attorney General did. Eventually, the Attorney General not only dismissed the indictments as wholly without foundation, but in a highly unusual statement declared the students innocent. From the beginning, both responding to the incident and communicating that response were made extremely difficult by the conflation of four different matters. The specific criminal charges, the behavior of the students at the party itself, whether or not any felony had been committed, contentions that this particular team had a record of misbehavior that had gone unchecked and unpunished, and meta-narratives about race sexual violence, both informed by and distinct from this and other particular incidents. The first three obviously depended in substantial measure on a determination of what the facts were, and determination of the facts related to the first two had to await the uh, completion of the criminal case. That said, two things were clear. Neither our community nor the public in general would be willing to wait to discover what the factual record would support before demanding that Duke look into and address a variety of issues, and any delay would be interpreted as some combination of lack of interest, obfuscation, and cover-up. Duke tried to respond, I believe, as openly and proactively as possible given those limitations. I would divide our response into two broad categories. Those related to the immediate problem that we faced and were largely designed to reassure the community and the public that the issues raised by the case would be dealt with seriously. These responses are the ones that are currently um, eliciting the greatest level of criticism. That criticism, I believe, provides a warning about how difficult communication is under circumstances of a case that generates so much deep emotion and prevent so many usable political opportunities for various people. Immediately after the allegations were made by the district attorney, the university canceled and forfeited one lacrosse game. Those actions were taken in response to what was believed to be known about the party and were self-consciously a group punishment, not an individual punishment, and imposed by the athletic department. Later, the university canceled the season. This decision was in part a reflection of the fact that it would not have been possible to protect the students participating in the game without a level of police presence that seemed wholly inappropriate, Uh, and in part a reflection that given community tensions at the time, trying to play the games would have been a mistake. In addition, the coach was was, uh, pressured to resign. The university formed a series of committees designed to identify problems and to reassure the community that issues were being taken seriously. When the indictments were handled down, it uh, responded then by taking administrative actions, which Duke always takes in such cases. Uh, We uh, are now in the process of rethinking this one, but uh, our policy had been in the very few cases in which a felony indictment came down against the student, that the student was administratively separated without any judgment uh, about the case. Um, 
Now, in addition to the actions taken by the universities, the university and the structures of faculty governance, and this was a completely seamless uh, administration, faculty governance um, operation there, individual faculty and students took the initiative to press the university to take more dramatic actions and used information they believed was of record to press a variety of reform agendas. Some of those actions took the form of direct action in the form of public protests and teaching moments. These actions have provoked a passionate and angry response from various people who have labeled them a rush <coughs> to judgment and condemned the university for failing to repudiate them. That response has significantly complicated the attempt to discuss how to ensure that athletics fits in with the mission of the university I do not think that there's anything especially surprising about either the initial use of the incident or the caricaturing and later use of it by um, various opponents, but I think it's an object lesson in the sorts of opposition that faculty who get involved can provoke, especially when their actions were deliberately provocative. What we did did discover and what we have done, what we have learned that might be useful to another institution. We discovered that in an effort to treat student-athletes like other students, we had erected certain barriers to communication about disciplinary issues that it made it very difficult for all of those involved, student affairs people, uh, athletic department personnel, and coaches to identify patterns of behavior that might need to be addressed at some level other than that of individual uh, discipline we now provide for much fuller communication between student affairs and the athletic department. We discovered that our reporting of off-campus incidents was incomplete. We have rewritten our student-athlete manual to require all student-athletes to self-report any such incidents as they occur. We discovered that our athletic council, the faculty, student, alumni, trustee body, with oversight responsibilities over athletics, was structured in a way that made it difficult for faculty to exercise effective leadership. The old body had been chaired by the faculty athletics representative. We determined that such an arrangement created certain conflicts of roles and so made another faculty member the chair and created an academic subcommittee <coughs> made up only of faculty and given agenda-setting responsibilities and authority. We discovered that members of the athletic department were more isolated from the faculty than we had realized. As our institution has grown in size and ambition, both the academic side and the athletic, on both the academic side and the athletic, fewer individuals knew each other personally and had the kind of personal rapport that could foster common purposes and avert <coughs> misunderstandings. Um, our Faculty Senate, in response, created the Faculty Athletic Associates Program that allows faculty members chosen by the Faculty Senate access to the teams. The initial experience with that effort has been variable, uh, but generally extremely positive and has certainly improved communication. We initiated, through the Keenan Ethics Center at Duke, a study of ethical decision-making among ath student-athletes we are still in the early phases of this work, but it appears to be producing interesting results that I would say are consistent with the view that there are differences, 
some clearly positive and some of which raise uh, issues that need to be thought through the way student athletes think about a variety of matters. For the first time in our history, we have brought the athletic department into the strategic planning process for the university. No results yet, um, but it should require the department to articulate its goals and priorities in ways consistent with the overall mission of the university. And finally, uh, we have continued in a slightly different guise a discussion that we've been having at Duke for the past 15 years about how to optimize the undergraduate experience uh, for all of our students. Part of that discussion is a serious consideration of the impact of intercollegiate athletics on the overall campus culture. Like many serious discussions, this is an ongoing one. Thank you, Paul. Nathan? Russian is taking notes. Um, my remarks are going to be, uh, they're going to start general, and then they're going to get specific to, to my institution and then brought it out. And I'd like to start with a story that occurred last weekend after uh, Stanford beat USC. Okay. Stanford student walks into an L.A. restaurant and orders a drink and asks the waiter if he'd like to hear a good USC joke. And the waiter says, listen, buddy, see those two big guys on your left? They were both linemen in the USC football team. And that huge guy on the right, he was a world-class wrestler at USC. And that guy in the corner was a USC all-time champion weightlifter. And I lettered in three sports in USC. Now, are you absolutely positive you want to go ahead and tell your joke here? And the student says, nah, guess not. I wouldn't, have to, wouldn't want to have to explain it five times. <laughs> so, uh, the stereotype of the dumb jock. Okay, sadly, these stories abound, despite data showing that student-athletes are by and large perform well, if not better, than their non-athlete counterparts. Indeed, the most recent, in fact, in the last few months, NCAA graduation rate data shows that 77% of student-athletes graduate within six years. So to paraphrase that old commercial, which actually is a really old commercial, you know, the old where's the beef commercial, what's the problem here? The problem can be summarized succinctly by a recent quote from a senior basketball player from an unnamed, I can't mention this, unnamed East Coast Division 1A school who said, I'm going to graduate on time, no matter how long it takes. <laughs> so what's the problem? Colleges and universities are failing to educate many student athletes. The NCAA predicts that 45% of all Division I-A basketball teams, 40% of football teams, and 35% of baseball teams will be penalized next year before, because they fall below the APR cutoff score. One Division I basketball squad did not graduate a single player within six years. There are tens of thousands of student athletes in Division I that do not graduate. But hey, this is okay, because after all, 1% or less of our student-athletes go on to earn a living in, as professional athletes. They don't need an education. They will earn millions. I heard a talk by Jim Beheim, the Syracuse basketball coach last year at last year's Sports Business Journal Intercollegiate Athletic Forum, who said that his job was to get his players into the NBA. And at some level, he's right. The job of coaches is to win and, if possible, to get their athletes into professional ranks. But that's not the job of higher education or of <coughs> university faculty 
Our job is to provide an education for all our students, student athletes, and those who are not. Unfortunately, we faculty have all too often looked the other way when it comes to requiring athletics to adhere to our academic mission. Case in point, this is where we get personal, my university. At the University of Oregon, we fly in 17-year-old recruits into Eugene on private jets. We have 33 different Nike-designed football uniform combinations, and we spend millions on extravagant locker rooms stocked with video games and big-screen TVs. Oregon spent more renovating its football stadium a few years back for six days of football than the overall total annual U.S. government budget to prevent AIDS in sub-Saharan Africa. We're planning a new $10 million academic learning center exclusively for 450 student athletes that will be larger and better staffed than the entire facility for our other 20,000 students. Even more amazing, the university is going to build a new ultra-opulent basketball arena by borrowing $200 million. That amount is larger than the total campus indebtedness for all facilities, athletics and non-athletics. Oh, and by the way, $200 million is 60% of our entire endowment, just to put it in perspective. And on a campus that's always begging for academic monies, we found a donor who gave $2 million to buy out the contract of our previous athletic director and then promoted him into the athletic director's job. That was his benefit. As my Jewish mother would say, you should be so lucky. Similar stories abound on other campuses. Is there a problem? You bet there is. But let's not point our fingers in the wrong direction. Coaches are hired to win. Athletic directors are employed to run their departments and win. University presidents, including those I'm looking at, are often charged with improving their athletic departments and win. Let's not blame the NCAA either, which is valiantly trying to improve academic performance and increase graduation rates and enable their members to win. There are enormous societal pressures to win on the field. It's, is it therefore surprising to anyone that when it comes to student-athletes education, corners are cut, <clears throat> papers are plagiarized, classes are missed, and as a result, degrees are not granted? Does anybody see here, in this room, and elsewhere, see the irony in an SEC football coach, again, unnamed, exhorting his athletes to line up alphabetically by height? or asking them to pair up in threes and then line up in a circle? Maybe I'm the only one who thinks that that's ironic. Higher education in this country evolved differently than elsewhere. Unlike other countries where the elite are provided a post-high school education, we have an unwritten social contract to give all of our children, every one of them, an opportunity for education. And it's us, the faculty, that have to make good on that promise. The faculty are stewards of academic integrity on this campus, on all our campuses. Faculty members are specifically responsible for developing and upholding academic standards, maintaining intellectual rigor, monitoring student performance, providing career opportunities, and facilitating personal growth. The faculty is historically, and in some cases legislatively, mandated to oversee all aspects of student life. We faculty adhere to two fundamental principles, that all students are treated fairly and equally and that all students are provided with opportunities to succeed academically. Given these principles, faculty must, and I emphasize, must be involved in athletics in order to maintain institutional integrity and academic standards. 
We need to adjust our priorities, not with the goal of eliminating athletics, but to ensure that athletics is fully integrated into the educational mission of our institutions. However, with the exception of the few schools that we've heard about here and others, we're not doing that at the moment. That's the problem. So what's the solution? I'm not nearly smart enough, frankly, to believe that I have the answers. But there are some things that I can suggest that people think about. The first is that faculty must admit that there's a problem. It's too easy to say that we're doing things right here and the problem is at your school, not mine. This attitude ignores NCAA data which says that your school has got a really good chance of being penalized next year for not meeting APR standards. More importantly, such an attitude shirks our professional obligations to make sure that all of our students receive an education. <clears throat> Declaring the existence of a problem is a good first step, but the next step is to accept that the problem is under faculty control. Faculty leaders across the country often declare we can't change the way athletics runs at our school. But you've just heard two examples to the contrary. Scott just told you about changes that are implemented in Colorado after scandals rocked his institution. And at Duke, precipitating events are different, but as Paul just said, the Duke faculty are also involved in the process of making significant changes. In each case, faculty took charge and insisted upon reform, and reform occurred, and for the better. For the better, not just of the institution, but of the athletes and of the students, which is the most important part. Even in Oregon, Senate leaders pushed the university into making the athletic department self-sufficient. Bringing athletics into the academic fold starts locally at your institution. You can do this. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. Begin the conversation now and use the Colorado and Duke models as a starting point. Don't wait for a crisis. Be proactive. The third step is to reform with other faculty, with, to work with other faculty in your conference to develop conference-specific reforms. I often hear faculty meet leaders bemoaning that we can't do anything here at our university because nobody else will follow us in our conference and we'll end up cutting our nose off to spite our face. Each Division I-A school that I have contact with as co-chair of COYA have surprisingly similar issues and concerns. Working together with your conference is the fastest way to promulgate significant athletic reform. And again, when I mean athletic reform, I mean things that will improve the life experience, the educational experience of our students. Reach out to your colleagues at other conferences and other conference institutions. And don't forget to include the people in your own institution, the faculty athletic reps, your campus athletic board, and the athletic advisors, all of whom have enormous amount of knowledge. They have a lot of experience and they need to be included. Finally, faculty leaders must work at the national level to institute broad-based change. We faculty need to support the NCAA's excellent academic reform package, which will be under stiff attack this coming spring as the APR penalties are doled out. Let's not let the naysayers get their way and water down the aims and implementation of this excellent package. Faculty should also work with national faculty groups, such as the AAUP, the Drake Group, and COYA, to move forward reform proposals. For example, several of our groups have proposed um, an idea which is full disclosure of student-athlete grades and sections to decrease the occurrence of faculty academic fraud. For me, this proposal is a no-brainer. After all, how can we expect any other group in this country to listen to us faculty if we can't police ourselves? Last June, COYA issued a white paper with 28 proposals including academic disclosure. And for the next 45 minutes, I'll read every proposal. No, I won't. I'm not going to go over them here, but it's clear that the implementation of these proposals would go a long way towards reintegrating athletics into academics. The bottom line is this. 
The fundamental rationale for intercollegiate athletics is that important life skills can be learned by meshing academic excellence with the discipline and value of sports. <clears throat> this goal can't be realized if we abandon the principle that academic achievement is essential to the personal development of student-athletes. Experience suggests, however, that many sports programs don't take academic goals seriously and let academic commitments overshadow, let athletic commitments overshadow academic work. Left unchecked, primetime college sports will continue to undermine academic integrity, which is the moral compass of higher education in the classroom and on the playing field. It's time to put the student back into the student-athlete equation, and faculty must lead this charge. Our motto should be, no student-athlete left behind. If we don't follow this path, we will continue to generate students like the basketball player, another unnamed basketball player, I might mention, who, when asked when he visited the Parthenon during his visit to Greece, said, I can't remember the names of the clubs I went to. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. Let's uh, give a round of applause all of the members of the panel for the two uh, very specific uh, uh, reports and the more generalized uh, uh, assessment of what the problems are and some of the solutions. I want, before we move into the next phase of the program, which will involve all of you, I hope, uh, to introduce a couple of other people who have come in. Anita de France, who is a member of the Knight Foundation Commission and is seated at the back table, along with another uh, member of the commission who you heard from this morning, Bill Asbury. And Maureen Devlin, who was uh, the executive director, or whatever the title was, of the Knight Foundation Commission from its inception to, uh, through about the first dozen years, and still has been, has been working with us still over the last few years, and helping very greatly in uh, the uh, work uh, that the foundation has, that the foundation committee has been able to accomplish. Now, uh, although this session is not being webcast, uh, it is being recorded, so when you want to ask, ask a question or make a comment, please uh, signal that you want to do so. Come to the microphone or someone will bring you a microphone. This young lady here will do that. Um, first of all, before going to the, uh, to the audience for questions or comments, do any of you have any uh, follow-up comments that you'd make now? with regard to the, what your colleagues have said? If not, any, any questions or comments from the floor? I have, let me start in. Uh, Bill uh, Asbury <clears throat> took advantage of the fact that he was co-chair this morning to ask a question, and I have, I have a question. It seems to me that from my, my long experience in this um, business, in education and in Student and in um, collegiate, uh, intercollegiate athletics, that the faculty uh, are conflicted uh, with regard to whether they want to get involved or not. On the one hand, I think they believe they ought to, but they really don't want to. And I suspect the reasons they don't want to are um, multiple. Uh, one of them, I think, is they don't want to get. They they think things they might they might by their involvement create as much harm as good, and they uh, like to a considerable extent the, what, what is going on. They do have, I think, the, the uh, view that, um, that was expressed by Nathan, uh, everything's fine here, it's those other schools where things are going bad. 
Uh, and for those reasons, it's sometimes very hard to get them involved. I worked very hard at UCLA especially to keep the faculty involved. And there's one other uh, uh, structural issue, it seems to me, which complicates matters. And it came up in a way in, in, in both uh, Scott's and Paul's comments, although not very clearly. Um, and that is the role of the faculty athletic representative and the relation of the faculty athletic representative to the faculty. I said last night at a dinner, and some of the people were here, so I, I'm sorry for repeating it, that, that first of all, some of my best friends are or have been faculty athletic representatives, and, and they, do a, they do a tough job, and it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it is a difficult one. But I think they, it is clear that in most instances they aren't faculty athletic representatives. They are faculty representatives of the president uh, with, or the chancellor with regard to the athletic program. And I think that that gets in the way of faculty involvement. And it seems to me that's an issue that at some point in time uh, needs to be uh, looked at a little more deeply. What, do any of you have any comments on that? Well, sometimes they're not even faculty. Um, in fact, we were having this conversation last night that uh, often they are administrators. Uh, in fact, at Colorado, up until recently, our, uh, our uh, provost was... Well, our, your provost should be that. Um, well, so the question is, do upper-level administrators count as administration or do they count as faculty? Um, I, I think there actually are some problems with the way we select the FARs. And there are even some problems as to how we structure their job. Their job is enormous. And um, our current FAR is having now to fight for additional relief time for a budget. Um, and I think that there should be better standards. Um, and I can't remember if the, if the COYA report had talked about having better standards across the universities for the FAR's position. Um, Getting back to perhaps your earlier question about getting faculty involved in athletics, um, I think to a certain extent it's actually, athletics is really no different than a lot of issues on campus, which is, um, I'll just use healthcare as an example. I think the faculty don't want to have to get involved in how the university seeks its, uh, structures its healthcare plan either. Um, but when there's a problem, that's when the faculty get energized and get more involved. But they would rather not have to do that. And I think athletics is the same way. Now, you're going to find a handful of faculty members on campus who will always be in involved in intercollegiate athletics issues, um, some of whom often are big supporters of the athletic department and really just want to be around the athletes. Um, that's not always a problem. Um, others who are a little more skeptical about intercollegiate athletics um, and, and get involved because of uh, uh, those reasons. Um, the reality is, though, it just sucks away time from what I get paid to do, which is my research and teaching, more so than, my, than these kinds of service things. And, um, for example, my time at Yale was because I needed to get away and get back to doing my research. So I think my experience is probably not all that different from others. Well, um, I mean, structurally, the fa faculty athletics rep is appointed by the president, must be appointed by the president. Um, our president <coughs> insisted on talking to me about who it ought to be uh, and took my recommendation. But, um, and she, is, she has very strong confidence of the faculty, and that's, that's been a very positive thing. 
But basically, her role is to um, protect the student athletes. And uh, I think very frequently the faculty think the role ought to be to rein in the entire enterprise. Um, and so that creates a necessary conflict, and it's one of the reasons we um, self-consciously separated the chair chairmanship of the academic subcommittee from the FAR. Uh, when you talked about why faculty um, don't get involved, I think a lot of faculty are afraid that this is a completely corrupt process, and as soon as you get yourself involved in it, you're just going to get dirty. Uh, and uh, so they try to stay away, and then will have radical uh, proposals. Um, a, a group of 50 faculty at Duke said we should go to D3 uh, in response to the crisis. And, um, and I think a significant part of that group, if they actually saw D3, would find it far too professionalized. Uh, so I, I think that that is another element. Questions? Is it, no, I'd, I'd like to address this one because this, this is an important one. Before we move on, I'll just make my comments brief. First, the FAR issue. The job of FAR, I believe, has gotten too big for one person. Simple as that. It's just too much to do. And um, furthermore, the FAR is caught in, in like no man's land, okay? The FAR is supposed to be representing some faculty view and at the same time has to support athletics and the president's point of view. And I think the FAR can do the latter or the former, but probably not both. And either way, the FAR has to have support of the faculty in order to do its job well. So it has to be restructured and it, I believe it has to have some input into how the FAR is chosen and how the FAR interacts with the rest of faculty. With respect to um, faculty view on athletics in general, I mean, Janet Lawrence's, I think she's back there, um, wonderful report, and, and I want to commend her and her staff for doing an outstanding job. Um, you saw in the early morning presentation that intercollegiate athletics ranked second to last. The only thing it was above is Greek life. Okay? Now, actually, if I had to rank it myself and most of the colleagues I know, that's exactly where we would put it. Intercollegiate athletics is an auxiliary enterprise of the university. It is not a primary mission of the university. It should be able to run by itself. <coughs> Faculty should be able to say, we're involved in education, this is athletics, it should be fine. Just run it by itself. The reason why faculty are involved in it is because it's not running by itself very well and it's causing all sorts of ripple effects that affect the academic side. I'm not in interested in, in reforming intercollegiate athletics. I'm interested in maintaining academic integrity. And that's what most faculty are involved and interested in. And that's why we're interested in dealing with intercollegiate athletics, because it's, it's, it's deviating from our mission. And we have to somehow bring it back. So as quickly as we can bring it back, then we can forget about it. Well, I, 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 hope, I hope you're not forgetting about the students who, do the, who, who are the ones who perform in the athletic program. Well, no, and but of course that's our academic mission as well. That's our academic mission. Uh, questions? Comments? Yes. Pam Gilfisher, University of California at Davis. 
I appreciate the comments that are being made this morning in regards to the faculty involvement and uh, believe that with this group's support, the Knight Commission particularly, that change can be affected. And I do believe that there are issues that have to be addressed. And having spent most of my 34 years at UC Davis involved in intercollegiate athletics as a coach, as a former student athlete, as an administrator, and now as a faculty member, I do believe that intercollegiate athletics is an integral part of all universities at some level. And it's up to that institution to determine from a philosophical base where they would like that program to land in the academic mission. Um, we're coming from a Division II perspective into a Division I perspective. And I have to say the first thing that caught our eye was a mission statement, Division I versus Division II, where it indicated that you're supposed to be self-financed self and you're supposed to be involved in entertainment. Well, we did not change our mission statement to accommodate that and actually got criticized by the NCAA in certification because we would not change the fact that we still felt we were a part and an integral part of the academic mission of the university. I think the NCAA is coming in that direction, actually, which is a good thing, and I think the Knight Commission is helping push that. Um, I have two questions after listening this morning. Uh, one is I'd like to know what your perspective is in regard to admissions and what role the faculty should have in the oversight of admissions as it's being done through intercollegiate athletics, how that relates to graduation rates, and what can be done to help and assist in that area. And the second part is, how do we get our coaches more involved from a faculty perspective? At our institution, again, having come from a Division II perspective, all of our coaches are still, and will continue to be, at least as long as our current chancellor is there, to be faculty members, including our head football coach, including our head basketball coach. They are lecturer coaches, and they have a dual review system where they are reviewed based on academics and they are reviewed based on their performance in athletics. Does that performance in athletics mean that they're winning? Is that success? And how are we going to integrate them into this process if they are not a part of the academic mission? I'd, I'd really appreciate your comments. Thank you. Let's, uh, uh, who would like to add, take the first question about admissions and uh, separate the two and I can, I can say what, what we do and <clears throat> what I think we think is uh, appropriate. There is a, uh, a faculty body that uh, oversees admissions and sets policies. Um, they, they don't read files. Uh, they are shown files as part of the policy review uh, mission. Um, I think it's a very tricky thing to get uh, faculty involved more deeply than that. Now, there, the one other thing that we are at least talking about um, at Duke is trying to um, deal with the admissions question on an output basis rather than an input basis, that we start to see what happens to our people and with, with uh, kids that we're taking calculated risks on that we commit to uh, making sure that it works uh, and, and that it works out for them. And uh, that has not yet been accepted, but uh, it is at least the direction we're taking. Any other comments on that question? Koya has responded to this, and this is a really good question. Koya has responded in our white paper, the, the one with the 238 recommendations. It keeps growing every, every hour. Um, about the admissions issue, and um, 
basically the 55 Senates and Senate presidents that we work with have agreed unanimously that, unfortunately, faculty have abrogated their — have given up their responsibilities with regard to admission. And sometimes that's okay, but a lot of students fall through the cracks as a result. And I think it's time for us, and I'm talking actually just broader than just student-athletes. I'm talking about all the students. I think it's time that, that we faculty take responsibility, that responsibility back, and that we get more involved in the admissions process. And not just in the admissions process, but in the recruiting process, particularly for student-athletes. I mean, you know, for example, I actually do read files, sorry. And um, when you read a file of a, of a high school student, in this, perhaps in the spring of their senior year, you have seven terms to look at their grades, right? They don't have their senior last year, last term of senior year. But in a student athlete, sometimes you're making decisions in the middle of the summer uh, after their junior year. And many times those student athletes have a variety of, of other confounding factors which makes a yes or no decision extremely difficult. And so, but non-faculty are making that decision oftentimes. That's not to say that they're not doing the best they can, but faculty should be involved in that decision. Um, Eddie's point in the back there, I mean, I think everybody should talk to Eddie personally and in one-on-one -on -one because, I mean, talking about learning outcomes and how people learn and, and looking at, at a wide panoply of, of requirements that are not just academic requirements, but a lot of other criteria to make good decisions. You have to try and get students into your university that will succeed. And then once they're in the university, you have to do everything you can to get them to succeed. Thank, Thank you. Uh, Scott, Scott, I think, wanted to respond to that. Well, there was just one specific thing about admissions. Uh, my undergraduate alma mater and my current uh, institution both picked up on the coach model of going out and recruiting kids uh, to have specific departments and people go out and recruit uh, students. So at Haverford, they were discovering they were getting no classics majors, and the classics department went out and started identifying terrific uh, classics kids and recruiting them. Uh, at Duke, it's been math. And uh, they went, learned from the coaches, and actually went out and used that experience. Um, and in both cases, it's been pretty terrific results. Uh, it's a different kind of a faculty involvement. Uh, Scott was uh, wanted to respond to the uh, question about coaches. Yeah, um, I think uh, you've really hit um, one of the big nails on the head here with respect to the kinds of students we bring into these programs, which is the coach makes all the difference in the world. Um, and we experienced this very clearly at Colorado, um, which was that if you had the right coach, they would recruit the right students who were going to be successful at the university, and they often said to me that they could play a different game if they co recruited the right students. The key, of course, here is getting the right coach. The problem that we have seen all too often is, as I, I think I might have mentioned in the previous panel, is that often the name of the coach is preordained 
Um, we, we know that there's already discussion about who's going to replace Lloyd Carr at Michigan before Lloyd Carr, before that's even on the table. Um, and that's not the way to go about replacing this person and putting the right person in this position who will work with the faculty, who will recruit kids who will be successful at the university, right? That's the key is to getting the right coach in there. I think, you know, uh, Davis has this old school model of, of, of putting them on faculty. That's great. Um, give them responsibilities with the, alongside with the faculty. Get them in talking to the faculty all the time, and they will hear about, you know, who are the successful students that we have and who's not successful and why are they successful. Um, I think the more that coaches understand the other demands that they're students have outside of athletics, which, you know, the things that I want them doing in the classroom, the more they understand that, the more they will realize really how hard the lives are for these kids. It's very grueling, I'm sure. Um, and I think that we will all be better off with the right coaches in the right positions. I, I, just, I have a comment. Um, I, think it, I think it would be helpful if, if it, if it could work out in such a way that coaches could be members of the faculty. I think if that's the case, they have to be members of the faculty. You can't just say, oh, well, we're going to give them a faculty appointment. And that the real, the, the important thing is choosing a coach who has the right mindset, who has the right set of principles, and uh, is going to deal with students in the appropriate way. There was an article in the Los Angeles Times on Saturday the day before John Wooden's 97th birthday, we said, Coach, we want you, Coach Wooden, we want you to understand that we finally figured you out. You masqueraded as a basketball coach in order to teach students and provide them with the right kind of moral philosophy. And I think that's what's important, uh, having a coach who has, the right under who has the right set of goals that he's working for. Uh, we have at least two more questions, one here and then one for, for you. Uh, Beth Sorensen, Wright State University in Dayton, Ohio. I wanted to respond to a couple of Scott's comments and Nathan's comments. Uh, okay, Nathan, uh, you, could you get the mic a little closer? Uh, yeah. Is this better? Yes, that's better. Thank you. Um, I agree with you that the FAR responsibilities are too large for one person to accomplish. At our university, we have two FARs, and we accomplish most of our work through our athletics committee or our athletics board. And there are a lot of, uh, there are too many things for one person to monitor at a time. Um, so we rely on our relationship with our athletics board and also with our coaches um, to accomplish that kind of work. Another thing that I wanted to, to mention is that, Scott, um, you, you were talking about the, uh, the NCAA rule for an athletics board, and I just wanted to kindly point out that the bylaw, the Division I bylaws, does not require a university to have an athletics board, but it says if you do have one, then it has to be made up a majority of faculty. So, so currently the, the Division I bylaws don't carry that sort of a, a directive to universities. I, I think that it should, um, but, it, but it doesn't. And um, I think that FARs, as Pam mentioned, I think that faculty and FARs can have impact, 
but we have to choose one small issue to start with. And at Wright State University, we've been developing for the past five (coughs) years a body of work on student-athlete pregnancy and parenting. And I think that as faculty members, we can bring to the table perspective. The NCAA focuses specifically and uniquely on the student-athlete, and the athletics department focuses specifically and uniquely on the student-athlete, but faculty can bring the perspective of knowing what's going on in the general student body. And we have to be aware and not abdicate our focus on health care, not abdicate that to individuals within the athletics department specifically. And, and we found that um, student-athletes on the issue of pregnancy and parenting were be t- being treated far more poorly than our general student body was, uh, specifically with regard to their financial aid, which was in jeopardy. And... Um, We've seen 2007 be quite a banner year for NCAA movement on this issue, uh, partly because, well, we sent the letter to them five years ago saying we have an unsafe environment, we have a problem. And uh, crisis didn't happen at, at our university, but it actually happened at someone else's university, Mercyhurst College, and I would have loved to have seen a Mercyhurst representative um, on the on the panel to talk about this. So I thank you for saying that you don't have to wait for crisis to happen. You can be thinking ahead. And as faculty, our, one of our jobs is to help protect our universities from risk and from liability um, and also advocate for our student-athletes who are young people. They don't have a life perspective uh, to understand the, the forces and the context which we have the perspective of. And uh, so I wanted to thank you for that comment. Since there wasn't a question there, and and we're beginning to run out of time, and there are some other people who want to either make a comment or ask a question, I'm going to move on to the next gentleman. Thank you. I'll I'll try to be very brief. Um, I am Eric Robinson, and I teach at Bader University. And uh, and listen very closely to this panel, thinking, you know, we've, we've had our share of crises at Bader with our men's basketball, and and I think one of the maybe many reasons I wasn't on this side of the table as opposed to here is that I was on some of the same committees that Scott and Paul served on, I think, as a, as a reaction to our basketball. But, but we haven't been as successful at carrying it further than just a university-driven um, committee to try to figure out what to do with our basketball and not make it a national issue. So I had one quick question for the two of you gentlemen, and that is could you give a flavor of the committee, the people on your committees that were created, I guess, by your president or by your chancellor. Um, I kind of want to compare that to the committee that I was on. And then second, a broader question, I think, for all three is, um, you know, it it seems like it is often a challenge of of trying to come up with a crisis uh, or come up with reform without a crisis to be there. I don't think we would be doing anything differently at Baylor if we hadn't had a major crisis, and, and you might speak to that also at your schools. And if that's the case, what specific things or key stakeholders within the university do you have to get on your side to make things happen before there's a crisis? Thank you. Thank you. Um, who, who got appointed to the committees? Um, <coughs> all, all of our committees, uh, any faculty committee at, at Duke has to have um, the nominations come from the faculty senate. Uh, so, um, uh, now, your faculty senate, so your faculty senate helped make this ad hoc committee, or was it an ad hoc committee? 
uh, 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 yeah, that was me. <laughs> uh, um, uh, uh, no, I mean, I, I started that. Um, uh, the president, uh, who is a terrific president, uh, uh, went along with it. But um, so th that's the way the, the structure is. We have tried to draw most heavily from the um, uh, undergraduate teaching faculty. Um, and that actually is a little bit of a problem because we get better response from the professional schools than from the undergraduate teaching faculty. Um, and you had another part to the question. Uh, after you stop getting to the same sure. thing, then it's just a general question of how to address issues with low prices. Um, well, okay, so briefly, our board was composed by the chancellor, I believe, in conjunction with the chair of our faculty assembly. Um, which are faculty senate, yes. Uh, there were some obvious people who were going to be appointed to the board since it was right after what had occurred. I was an obvious person. The other two members of my committee that did the report with me were appointed. Um, um, uh, then a few other faculty members, some from professional schools, but some from um, arts and sciences. Then, as I said, we also included a coach um, the compliance officer for the athletic department, um, a, a high-level uh, high administrator, someone who does budgets for the university, um, a student athlete. I believe there was also someone from our student government. <coughs> I don't remember what that's called at CU, sorry. Um, so it was a relatively diverse group, um, but again, dominated. the majority were faculty. And then the second question, oh, the crisis. Let me, let me say one thing about um, this, it, which is somewhat directed at, you, at your question, which is, and this goes to every university, go back and make sure your administration has a crisis management plan. And not just about athletics. It can be about anything. As we learned at CU, sometimes it's not even about athletics that can be the problem. Um, make sure there's a flow chart that everyone knows who's supposed to be talking to the press and who's not supposed to be talking to the press, who meets when student X has been arrested for Y. Um, you make sure that plan is in place. It's now in place at CU. It wasn't in place at the time, and I think it would have solved some problems early on if we had had a crisis management plan. Um, how, but how do you get your administrators to listen uh, to changes, I think you use the COYA report and you say, listen, there's a group of people out there who've thought about this long and hard and they've come up with a, a series of uh, best practices, a white paper, uh, guidelines. We should start thinking about how we can make changes. Now, the, the, as I said before, you're going to get nowhere without um, willing administrators, administrators who are going to back you up um, but if you have that, I think that you can make a lot of progress on implementing some of these recommendations. Chuck, if I just uh, I want to give a quick anecdote and then ask a, a question. A few decades ago uh, at Ohio State University, uh, a school I had the pleasure of serving as uh, president for four years, um, the, was invited to the Rose Bowl. And by a quirk of the schedule, the Rose Bowl uh, that year wasn't on New Year's Day. It was uh, a day later, and the winter quarter began. And the faculty athletic council 
voted that Ohio State couldn't play in the Rose Bowl. Um, and the Columbus Dispatch the next day published the names of the faculty <laughs> council and their addresses on the front page of the, pup, of the dispatch. Now, there's two important points there. One, uh, we have lost something uh, in our uh, structure with intercollegiate athletics that we don't have that kind of voice uh, from the faculty in, in decisions like that. But it also points out that there are external forces that are putting pressure on our institutions, our boards, uh, et cetera, that are, I think, sending us in a, a, a very dangerous direction. I actually believe that, uh, you know, the, the, the issue of <coughs> academic integrity, we have a chance of addressing that with the APR. I'm not, I, I, it's too early to say for sure, but I think we have a chance of addressing this. My greatest concern is that we have lost control of the economics and the commercial interests. That is a problem that is going to be even more difficult for us to address than the academic uh, uh, issues. And I just wondered if uh, the panel uh, shares my uh, alarm and concern where we have athletic budgets growing at 10 times the rate of academic uh, budgets at many Division I-A schools. Let the chair say that he shares your concern. All right. Uh, now I'll, I'll find out whether the rest of the panel uh, I think the answer is absolutely, but, you know, a historical footnote may be worthwhile. The largest stadium in the entire Western world, other than the Coliseum in Rome, was the Yale Bowl, and it was built for one football game every other year. Uh, Harvard built the first permanent football stadium in the United States and reduced the salaries of assistant professors in 1905. Uh, this isn't a new problem, um, and I think it is driven uh, – it has changed, and it has gotten substantially worse, and there is a much more uh, – much larger body of people who have a huge economic stake in resting control um, than we've ever seen before. So, yeah, I'm sure you're right. Nathan? Uh, well, might be surprised that I actually agree with you. Because um, I do, totally. But I'm not as pessimistic, perhaps, as your, your, your <coughs> implication that, that it's sort of out of control and we can't do anything about it. I think we can do – and I'm talking about the, the financial um, aspects of it. I think we have complete control over it. And I think it starts with the presidents. I think it starts with leadership. I think it starts with the presidents and the provosts. If the presidents want to take money for athletics over taking money for academics, then it's going to happen. At my university, our president is engaged in taking money for athletics over academics. We have a $600 million capital campaign, and half of it is going to athletics, half. The, academic, the athletic budget is 8% of the university. Now, to me, that's a misdirection of priorities. If the president chose to say, I want to take some of that money and put it towards academics, I think he could convince people to put a small percentage. Let me just give you a quick anecdote, and that is that we try to, faculty try to get the university president to say to, to tax athletic donations and say a percentage should go to academics. No, we were told. Donors would never agree to that. They won't 
give that money, and there's no way. So then we said, okay, how about, I, you know, I started as faculty Sam president, I started big. I, 10 percent. Nope. 5 percent. Nope. 1 percent. Nope. Then I said, okay, I'd change strategies, being so successful. I said, how about if we actually take a football ticket, a $50 football ticket, and have $1 allocated towards academics? Nope. They won't buy the tickets, I was told. How about 50 cents? Nope. I got to down to 25 cents, 25 bloody cents. I was told, how about a quarter? to go to, like, faculty salaries, to go to student-athlete, to student-athlete, you know, scholarships, underprivileged students. No, I was told. The president could have said yes. You presidents have the ability to stop this, and it's up to you to do it. We can't do it. We can just support you in this. You've got to do it. I certainly agree that the president has to keep forward this and must step up and show some courage. However, he wants you to get on the uh, on oh, oh, there are mic. Okay. There. I agree that the onus, uh, uh, part of the responsibility falls to the presence. No question about that. And they haven't shown enough courage on this issue. But there is also, uh, you know, the president's report to boards. And boards are just, you know, many of them, you know, it's totally wrapped up in, in intercollegiate athletics. So, you know, the, the president uh, isn't, uh, can't be excused, but can't be, uh, the, the, does have to operate in a context which uh, certainly complicates. Uh, I totally practice. agree, but I would add that I've yet to read a mission statement of a Division I-A school that has the word athletics in the mission statement. Okay, so when you find me a school where the mission statement says athletics, then perhaps some of that money should be responsibly going to athletics. But I think <coughs> the president can tell the board our mission is academics. Anything from uh, the other two panel members on this issue? I, I, I think I said what I, I, I agreed in the last panel. Uh, you know, I, I, what I don't understand is this relationship between the boards and presidents. I, I'm not sure why the presidents are unable to convince boards that, listen, we, we need to de-emphasize athletics a little bit here. We, this is not, as, as Nathan was saying, this is not central to what the athletic, what the, um, the university is doing. So um, I, I think part of that relationship I don't quite understand. But I think I have a comment on that, and, and then perhaps I, we're, we're about the time we're supposed to be closing. Or was it 12.15? 12. 12 o'clock. Um, I was chancellor of UCLA for 29 years, and in all that time, I was asked. I was on. I was uh, the board of regents asked me or pressed me on on a, an athletic issue one time. It was when I said we're leaving the Coliseum and going to the Rose Bowl to play our football games, and there was all kinds of pressure from the city of Los Angeles, from the mayor who was then running for governor and who everyone expected to win. Uh, at, about that, and they asked me, and I responded, and that was the end of it. Uh, um, I, I think in part that's because they knew how I would react if they started telling me how to deal with the athletic program at UCLA. But, so, but, but, but that, the, that situation is very different in other instances. Uh, I think, we, I think we're going to have to, to uh, bring this session to a close. Uh, we have uh, uh, other um, uh, parts of the program to come up this afternoon. I want once again to thank the panel.
for their contributions and the stimulation that they have provided us, and to thank the audience for participating and for uh, being so uh, uh, good as an audience uh, for this program. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. For more information on the Knight Commission, please visit www.knightcommission.org.